What a joy, right? What a joy it is to be gathered together as the people of God. You know, I find myself this morning thinking about the Apostle Paul and about his first letter to the Thessalonian church. There's a passage that I particularly like in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, where Paul gives, grateful, gives thanks for the gratefulness uh, that he has with respect to the people of God. And this is what he says. We give thanks to God for you always, constantly mentioning you in, your, in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And, be, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You welcomed the message in the midst of much affliction, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became examples to the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And then later, in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul poses what I think is a wonderful question. He asks, For what is our hope, or our joy, or our crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Well, friends, as we gather this morning here at Anacostia River Church, as a body of believers who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we too, by God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit, have received the gospel for what it truly is. Praise God that the word of God is alive and active and at work in us. Now, no matter what challenges or difficulties or problems you've come here with today, no matter what you're facing, we are here right, to celebrate God's name. That's providence. Praise God. By knitting us here today as a small representation of the greater body of Christ, God has given us each other. We, church, are each other's hope. We are each other's joy. We are each other's crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming. That's something we should celebrate. That's something we should celebrate. Praise God. And as we celebrate, I personally would like to thank you, brothers and sisters of ARC. I thank you for your work of faith in my life. I thank you for your labor of love for my salvation. And I thank you for your steadfast love for my eternal life. But not just me. Your faith, your love, and your hope extends to my family as well. To Jennifer, my excellent wife, the woman who's the crown upon my head, and to my sons, Chengatai, Taurai, and Sumukai, the boys who are arrows in my hand. Thank you, church, for being our glory and our joy in Jesus Christ. And I thank you to the pastors and to the entire church for allowing me this moment to share the word of God with you. I pray that by God's providence, each of you will draw at least a small kernel of grace from today's message. Something that may contribute to the work that the, and the fruit that the Word of God is already doing in your lives. So with that in mind, let's turn to God in prayer. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.
Now, church, when Pastor T invited me to preach, he did so by email. It came in my phone, and it kind of caught me by surprise. You know, I looked at it, I read it, and then suddenly it felt like I was catapulted back into the 1970s, right? Because somehow I suddenly started sounding like Arnold from Different Strokes. <laughs> what are you talking about, Pastor T? Now, his email was well-written, and he explained that he was inviting me to preach the second sermon in a three-part series about the attributes of God. He reminded us that Stephen Harris had kicked us off on September 1st with a sermon encouraging us to give praise to the sovereign God. Now, you guys remember that, right? You do, right? Okay. How could we forget? I mean, Steve kicked us off. The brother really kicked us off. So here's my question. Who in their right mind would want to follow that? (laughs) Not me. Not me, church. So I came up with a plan. I was going to write back to Pastor T and tell him, No, sir. Mm -mm. No, no. I'm not going to do this. In fact, stop harassing me, man. Just email me again. Email me again, and I'm going to change my phone number. You know? But then I remember the words that the Lord had spoken to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So I did the only wise thing I could think of. I consulted my wife. And she also encouraged me to preach. Now by providence, I had been reading through the Gospel of Luke. And I felt drawn to chapter 12, verse 4 to 7. So I told the pastor that I would preach on that particular text, and the attribute that I would talk about is God's attention to detail. So I felt pretty good about myself. I had done what he said, sent him the email, and I felt great. Well, at least until the pastor's email came back. Church emailed back quick. This is what he said. He said, well, you know, I mean, I see where you're going with that attention to detail stuff. I do. But how about we try something more traditional? You know, like, like, like providence or omniscience. You know, something that'll fit on the sermon card. You know? <laughs> now, church, you ever kick yourself because you realize that you've been tripping? I forgot who I was talking to. Man, this is Pastor T. He's the type of cat who likes to work with the big words. Right? The man likes to roll with the big words. So what choice did I have? I wrote back to him. I said, you know, that's cool. That's cool, Pastor. I can do that. I can roll with the big words. So this morning, church, we're going to roll with the big words. Our theme today is providence. But between you and me, I'm going to talk a little bit about God's attention to detail. (laughs) Just don't tell Pastor T. And also, please don't think that That's me being rebellious. Because as it turns out, God's providence and God's attention to detail are basically the same fruit that share the same seed. You see, providence is just a big word that means God's got this, fam. He's got us covered. God's got this. And by this, I mean everything. From the heavens that declare the glory of God to the skies that proclaim the works of his hands, right down to the very steps of his saints, which he orders faithfully in his word. God's got this. And by God, I mean God has complete 
ever-knowing, always aware, all-understanding, always perceiving, ever-foreseeing, ever-purposeful care and direction over the universe and over the lives and affairs of all mankind and everything that he has made in the heavens and the earth. There's no such thing as chance or happenstance. God's got this, fam. He's got us covered. That's providence. And that's what we'll see in our text this morning as we examine Luke chapter 12, verse 47. Now, if you're planning on taking notes, here's the summary. God's got this. (laughs) He's got us covered. Say no more. But I like the text in Luke that we've chosen today because it demonstrates that God's providence is not only alive within the overarching dimensions of his active watchful care over the entire heavens and the earth. It also very much manifests materially as an intimate concentration of attention to detail in the day-to-day lives of both the creatures and the people he has created. I'll say that again. God's providence is not only alive within the overarching dimensions of his active, watchful care over the entire heavens and the earth, it also very much manifests materially as an intimate concentration of attention to detail in the day-to-day lives of both the creatures and the people he has created. God's got this, fam. He's got us covered. Say no more. Well, okay. Now let's look at the text. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. And if you're new to the Bible, Luke is the third book in the New Testament. And the chapters are the big numbers and the verses are the small numbers. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 7. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. All right. The passage reads as follows. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, the speaker in this passage is the Lord Jesus himself. And the account of his teaching was written by Luke, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like the other gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, and John, the gospel of Luke provides an account of the Lord Jesus' incarnate life, his death, and his resurrection. The author Luke tells us in chapter 1 that he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning and and that his intention is to provide an orderly account of things, a trustworthy record of the life and ministry of Jesus. He wants his readers, which includes us, to have certainty of the things being taught by the apostles in the name of Christ. And the authenticity of Luke's gospel account is supported by the fact that he was a companion of Paul, one who labored with him in ministry. Luke, who is penman of both this gospel and the book of Acts, shows himself to be a master historian and an excellent, magnificent writer, one whose vivid and descriptive prose washes over with incredible Attention to detail. Luke's writing makes the scenes that he narrates come vividly, wonderfully, and brilliantly alive in our mind's eye. And now in our particular text, the the scene takes place at a climactic point in the gospel narrative. It occurs in front of a pressing crowd of thousands of people. 
And right before, right, this comes right after the Lord has scolded the Pharisees and the lawyers for their hypocrisy, for their obstruction to the gospel, and for their blindness to their own sin. In our passage, Jesus turns to his disciples and he addresses them as friends. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are worth more than many sparrows. Now we know Jesus is the Son of God. He's a member of the Holy Trinity. And therefore, the attribute of providence, which includes omniscience, which is the power to know all things, is present in him as much as it is in God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus knows, therefore, that the Pharisees and the lawyers are out to set a trap for him, a trap they hope will lead to his death. But Jesus also knows that into the future, his own disciples will experience trials and tribulations even unto the point of being killed. Thus, the imperative that he gives here in verses 4 and 5 are not just generalized ideals, but rather they're specific encouragements that offer powerful contrasts. On the one hand, he says, do not fear those who can only kill the body. On the other hand, he says, fear him, namely God, who can cast you into hell. Now listen. For the unbeliever, verses 4 and 5 present a fire and a frying pan type of contrast. For to be killed is horrible. But to be cast into hell is so indescribably worse. But the message in verses 4 and 5 is addressed not to unbelievers, but to Jesus' friends. And to Jesus' friends, these are words of uncontainable hope and comfort. Because you see, the fear of the Lord is a very good thing to the friends of Jesus. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The friends of Jesus are those who have been convicted by the Holy Spirit. They have become aware that they are sinners. They understand that they have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 explain that the friends of Jesus are those who confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. For it is with our hearts that we believe and are justified, and it is with our mouths that we profess our faith and are saved. Now, if you're listening here today, and you're not a friend of Jesus, I pray you, friend, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Instead, allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin. Receive the grace that God is extending to all who will believe. Repent. Turn from your disobedience. Believe in Jesus and be grafted into the family of God. And if you are a friend of Jesus, the message in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, is, as we said, a clear and present comfort. Those who can only kill the body have got nothing, but God's got this. He has all power, not only over physical life and death, 
but also over eternal life and death as well. God's got this fam. He's got us covered. Say no more. Now clearly, the call to fear God instead of man should resonate with us all. Especially since trials and tribulations are rather commonplace in life. But it's probably fair to say, especially in our community, that some of us face the threat of death more readily and more presently than others. Now, that's not a judgment. It's simply an observation. But the point to draw from this is that those close to the threat may possibly relate to the providential message in verses 4 and 5 more easily than those further away. Now, in my mind, that's what makes verses 6 and 7 so important. You see, they amplify verses 4 and 5 with a vivid expression and an intimate attention to detail that brings the assurance of providence very much alive in our mind's eye. Verses 6 and 7 say this, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are worth more than many sparrows. Now, church, before we go on, I've got something to confess. You know, verses 6 and 7 had me tripping for a little bit. I mean, verses 4 and 5, in verses 4 and 5, the Lord is talking about fear. Don't fear man, fear God. Don't fear man, fear God. But the next verse is it appears that the Lord suddenly flips the script. It threw me for a loop. As I was preparing for this message, I have to confess I got a little bit confused. And for those of you who are basketball fans... It was like the Allen Iverson inside of me suddenly kicked in and kicked a fuss. There I was. Lord, if anyone tells me I misunderstood the passage, if anyone tells me on Sunday that I misunderstood the passage, then that's that. I mean, if I can't understand the passage, I can't understand the passage. If I'm hurt, I'm hurt. It's as simple as that. But it ain't all about that. It ain't about that at all. The passage is easy to talk about It's easy to talk about when we're talking about providence and fear. But we're sitting here, Lord, and I'm supposed to be preaching on Sunday. On Sunday. And we're here talking about sparrows and hair. I mean, Lord, we're talking about sparrows and hair. Not providence. Not fear. We're talking about sparrows. Not the providence that I told Pastor T I was going to come and preach on Sunday. Not providence. Lord, we're talking about sparrows and hair. How confusing is that? Well, thanks be to God who leads us in triumphant procession. Because the Lord met me at my 11th hour and revealed to me the meaning of the text. And it turns out that verses 6 and 7 are actually talking about sparrows and hair. But they're also talking about providence. So I ask you, by how? How does Jesus make the connection between sparrows and hair and providence? Well, in my mind, the sparrow part is relatively and comparatively easier to understand. Verse 6 says this, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. That's like that song, right? You know the one I mean? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sing it. We'll leave that to Amos and the choir. But I'll read it to you. Why should I feel discouraged? Why? Why Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? 
Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? A constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow. And I, I know he watches me. Right? Verse 6 and 7 are essentially telling us that God's got this. He's even got the sparrows covered. Now, that may sound cute to you if you know nothing about sparrows. And I certainly didn't know very much about them before I looked them up. Google is your friend. <laughs> Basically, sparrows are like raccoons with wings. Seriously. Seriously. They're pests, especially around human dwellings and domesticated animals. They harbor parasites. They spread disease. Their feces damages structures and contaminates walkways. Their nests can even clog drains. They can cause roof leaks. They're fire hazards. Sparrows are even bullies among other birds. And they often chase away the native songbirds. Now, the long and the short of it is that sparrows are less than desirable birds. They really are. Both the Old and the New Testament speak to the reality that sparrows were of very little value in Jewish society. The pesky nature of sparrows may be one of the reasons that the writer in Psalm 84, verse 3, says that even the sparrow finds a home in the temple of the Lord. As though it's surprising, right? That a, that a bird of such low value might find a home in the house of the Lord. It's probably also why in the prayer of the afflicted in Psalm 102, verse 7, the writer compares himself to a lonely sparrow on a roof. And it's why in Proverbs 26, verse 2, a fluttering sparrow is compa compared to an undeserved curse. It makes sense then in Luke chapter 12, verse 6, that the Lord would make a detailed point of stating the actual monetary value of sparrows. Five sparrows for two pennies. Or in Matthew 10, verse 29, two sparrows for just one penny. The point is that sparrows were cheap. Because nobody wanted anything to do with them. Only the poor would have no choice but to buy them for food and for sacrifices. Now the emphasis in Luke chapter 12, verse 6 and 7 is this. God does not forget even the most despised among birds. And if he doesn't, how much more will he remember and care for us? God's got this, fam. He's got us covered, even the sparrows. That's providence. Now, let's deal with a powerful qualifying statement at the beginning of verse 7. Now, to this point, we've had assurance in verse 4 that God's providence covers us even under the threat of physical death. We've had a reminder in verse 5 that God also has providential power over eternal life and death. And we know in verse 6 and in the end of verse 7 that God's providence extends over even the most insignificant of birds. And that our confidence in his providential care should greatly be amplified because we are more valuable than a mere sparrow. But what about that section at the beginning of verse 7? Church, can we talk about hair? I mean, you know I've got to ask permission, right? Especially here. Can we talk about hair? Can we? All right, all right. Let's talk about hair. Why even the hairs on your head are all numbered. What is the Lord talking about? I think it's this. 
Not all of us have people out, to kill, out there ready to kill us. And many of us have never seen a sparrow. And if we did, we wouldn't even know what it looked like and couldn't recognize it. But for the most part, we all have hair. Well, I mean, some of us a little bit more than others, right? <laughs> but we all have hair. Because we have hair, any message about providence that includes a reference to hair, without a doubt, should be relatable to all of us, right? And I think, the, and I think that's why the Lord drops this powerful nugget at the beginning of verse 7. Here's the thing. Hair is important to us. It's really important. I mean, we even categorize it. There's a whole system to categorize it. It's called the FIA system. And it classifies hair by thickness, I'm sorry, by pattern, by thickness, and by volume. In terms of pattern, hair can be straight, wavy, curly, or nappy. In terms of thickness, hair can be fine, medium, coarse, or nappy. And in terms of volume, hair can be thin, medium, thick, or just plain nappy. Now, okay, I added the nappy part. But those with nappy hair know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, look, hair is really important to us. And it has an important role in our lives, right? It keeps us warm. It protects us from uh, difficulties and issues. Hair is on our bodies, across our, every, everywhere part of our bodies. It's on our heads. It contributes to our sense of touch. Hair is so important that we even have movies about hair. Hair, 1979. Hairspray, 1988. Steel Magnolias, 1989. Poetic Justice, 1993. The Barbershop Trilogy, people. 2002 to 2016. Beauty Shop, 2005. Good Hair, 2009, Napoli Ever After, 2018, right? And my personal favorite, School Days, 1988, shout out to Spike Lee. We're always talking about hair. Come to find out, hair is important to God too. At three major points in the cycle of redemption, God's providence is clearly demonstrated through hair in creation, in salvation, and while we wait for the Lord Jesus at his coming. Now in creation, God made mankind in his image and he set us up as the crown jewel of his creation and everything that he had made. And by providence, he created us male and female with different but complementary bodies and qualities. This so that we could be successful in fulfilling his mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Also, to illustrate that we are indeed reflections of his glory, God in his providence even put physical crowns upon our heads. Those crowns are our hair. We learn in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 14 to 15 that a woman's hair is her glory because her hair is her covering. In other words, if you're a woman... Your lovely hair, whether it's straight, wavy, curly, or nappy, should remind you of God's providence. God's got this. And by this, I mean you. He's got you covered. 
and in a really beautiful way. Like the bride described in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 5, your head crowns you like caramel, and your overflowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in its tresses. And if you're a married woman, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 1 to 15, should remind you of God's providence in providing you not only hair, but a husband as your covering. And if you're a man, know that Proverbs 16, 31, and Proverbs 20, verse 29, Tell us that gray hair is the splendor of old men. Gray hairs. I'm, I'm not looking at Pastor here on purpose. Just. Gray hair is the crown of glory gained through living a righteous life. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and if you're a young man, don't worry about it. Even if your hair is amazing, even if it's as amazing as that of Absalom, your glory doesn't lie in your hair. Your glory lies in your youth, the strength of your youth. So for both men and women, the thought of hair should fill us with awe and wonderment. God has given us hair as a reminder that we are the crown of his creation and a reflection of his glory. Friends, hair should make us all realize that God's got this, fam. He's got us covered. Say no more. So what about salvation? Well, there's so much we could say about the providential connection between hair and salvation. But we only have time for a short exploration. So let's think about the redemptive arc of history. God makes man. Man disobeys God. And as Lamentations 5 verse 6 tells us, sin causes the crown of glory to fall away from man's head. God banishes man from his presence, but not without a providential plan for his restoration. But man continues sinning, yet God forbears and does not pour out his full wrath against man. God establishes the law through Moses so that man can clearly understand the nature of sin and know the difference between holy living and, depravity, and the depravity of sin. But man continues to sin, pretty much ignoring all the priests and the prophets that God provides to turn man back to him. So, finally, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus comes, he lives in the world with us, and he fulfills all righteousness. And then he dies a raggedy, wretched death on a raggedy cross. In fact, Christ trades his own crown of glory for a twisted together thorn of crowns, one that's forced upon his head in the midst of much mocking. And the Son of God dies. But then by providence, he rises again so that all who believe might not perish but have eternal life. And for those who submit to the Lordship of Christ, 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 reveals that there is a crown of righteousness laid up for them, one that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award, will award them on that day. In fact, Isaiah 28 verse 5 explains that in that day, the Lord of hosts will be the crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And Isaiah 62 verse 3 says, in return, the Lord's people will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of their God. However, for those intoxicated by sin 
who foolishly think that they will escape judgment. Psalm 68 verse 20 and 21 present a sobering truth. Although God is a God of salvation and although deliverance from death belongs to him, he will indeed strike the heads of his enemies and condemn the hairy crown of him who persists in his guilty ways. Friends, hair should remind us of God's providence in salvation. He made you. You rejected him. He saved you. And if you surrender to him, Christ will be your crown of glory and you will be his. God's got this, fam. He's got us covered. Say no more. Now, one more thing. I find it interesting that there's a great connection between Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, and Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. It relates to all this talk we've been having about sparrows and hair. Now, let me give you the cliff notes. Those two chapters in Leviticus outline the law regarding the identification and the cleansing of leprosy. In Leviticus 13, verse 45, we see that the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. He shall let his hair hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside of the camp. Now, this is clearly a tragic thing to be exiled in this way. But by God's providence, the story doesn't end there. In Leviticus 14, verse 1, we're assured that there is indeed a day of cleansing for the leprous person. If the leprous condition were to be healed and the healing is confirmed by a priest, then the law provided that a person could be cleansed and restored to the camp. Now here's the fascinating part. The cleansing process actually involved two sparrow-like birds. One bird would be killed in an, earthen, in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. Then the live bird would be dipped in the blood of the sacrificed one, along with some cedar wood, some scarlet, and some hyssop. The person would be sprinkled seven times with the blood, and then the live bird would be released into an open field. And the person being cleansed would shave off all his hair, wash his clothes, and bathe himself. And after that, the person would be allowed back into the camp. There'd be a guilt offering and a sin offering and a burnt offering with lambs and turtle doves or turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest would make atonement for the person being cleansed. Now you tell me, church, what does that bring to mind? Well, here's something worth noting. The leprous condition, as it was treated under the law, while obviously a physical disease, also served as a vivid metaphor. It's a powerful illustration of the unclean nature of mankind's uh, persistent condition of sin. Now, given that context, what do we think? Doesn't the killing of the sparrow remind us of the death of Christ? And doesn't the dipping of the live bird in the blood remind us of washing our robes in the blood of the lamb? And doesn't the release of the live bird remind us that God makes the sins of his children fly far away. And doesn't the shaving 
of the head remind us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Gone, gone, gone is that sinful hairy crown. And doesn't the priest making atonement for the man remind us that we have a great high priest, one who passes through the heavens, Jesus himself, the Son of God. And finally, doesn't allowing the person back into the camp remind us that God allows his saints to enter into his rest always and forever? I don't know about you, church, but the providence of God and his attention to detail completely overwhelm me. I mean, I think I, I think I understand. I think I now understand why the woman was weeping at the feet of Jesus. This was in Luke 7, verse 38. I think I understand why her tears soaked his feet. Why she wiped them with her hair. I think I get it. I think I get it. I think I also understand why the scriptures encourage us so earnestly to fear God and not men. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if people out there hate us because of Christ. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the people who hate us are more numerous than the hairs on our head. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if our enemies, strangers, our friends, or or our family members themselves try to kill us. That doesn't matter either. Because God will not forsake us. Even if we die, even if we die, God will keep us even into old age, even if we die. Not a hair on our head will perish, says the Lord. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life. A crown that God has promised to those who love him. That's why we wait for his coming, church. That's why we wait for his coming. And one last thing. Did you guys know that there are over 100,000 hair follicles on your head? 100,000. That's 100,000 reminders of providence. Right here on our noggins. Church, let's pay attention to detail. And let's not take providence for granted. God's got this, fam. He's got us covered. Say no more. Let us pray. Lord, thank you that you've got us. Thank you that your providence extends not only to the heavens and the earth, but also to the lives that we live on a day-to-day basis. Lord, if we're here and we are struggling because we don't see your face, Lord, Lord, show us your face. Lord, show us your face in an intimate Level of detail, Lord, one that we can grasp on a day-to-day basis. Lord, just like the hair on our heads, Lord, show us your face. And thank you, Lord, that we are to fear nothing else 
For you, Lord, are our glory. You, Lord, are our providence. Thank you, Lord, forever and ever. Amen.